Welcome to Truth Jihad, audio-visual. I'm Kevin Barrett. I've been doing the show as a radio show since 2006 and throwing in some videos starting a few years after that. And now that YouTube has banned me uh, permanently from my main account, um, I'm mostly on, on Rumble. You can find me by way of my substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com or my main website, truthjihad.com. I try to bring on the most interesting folks from all over the world uh, telling the truth or questioning the narrative at least uh and today we've got nick collarstrom he's a longtime uh, well-known figure in the 9-11 truth movement the 7-7 truth movement the anti-war movement in general he's a longtime peace campaigner and he has a new book out called ukraine the just war so even though he's uh known as a peacenik he's actually saying that this particular war is a just war but it's not the just war that they're telling us about in the Western mainstream media. It's a just war from the viewpoint of Russia. So that's, of course, utterly heretical. And I'm going to be looking out my window to see if the drones are coming during this interview. But we'll see if we can get through it. So, hey, welcome, Nick Collarstrom. How are you doing? Okay, Kevin. Thanks uh, Thanks very much for that intro. And um, uh, it's a long time since we met, since you last came over to, to, to London. But uh, I, I feel we've had a similarity of interests over the years. And uh, I've had great I'm times not, with you in London and Tehran, both. Uh, all right. And I, I'm not in any way a sort of geopolitical expert or commentator or your war correspondent. And I come at this through really being fascinated by the psychology of deception of British intelligence, British and American intelligence. Uh, and I feel that's a, a sort of primary dynamic of this century, whereby the hidden, hidden hand makes up fabricated stories that are never quite true. And these stories always have the dismal aim of telling you who to hate, who to blame, and why the next war is necessary. Uh, and that's incredibly strange that we've got this going on, like the, uh, you know, the Nord Stream 2 are blowing up, right? Blowing up the world's largest terrorist acts, you know, the greatest eco-terror acts ever. And it hasn't come up with 9-11 that America did it, and America won't say that it did it. Uh, this is a, a kind of very strange, uh, and none of the politicians in Europe are allowed to say who did it. This amazing. Uh, they, they, they will uh, admit that they can't talk about it. They will admit that they can't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what kind of situation is this we're in? Where, where uh, uh, anyway, I, I first, I didn't think this is quite my area, but uh, a, fr a friend, a colleague asked me, he said I should write about it. He said I've got a good style uh, and I should have a go at it. And so eventually I felt sufficiently annoyed about what was happening that, that I did have a go at it. Uh, and uh, th this is uh, this is my, my, my take on it. Uh, of uh, As you say, I've been a life, lifetime anti-war peace activist. Uh, and it's incredibly strange to go through this the logic of this process. But Russia did not have any option other than the, this, this war. It was cornered into a situation. And I could say that there's other occasions where the British Empire has cornered people in a situation where they had no option but, but to fight. And then the fight gets blamed on them. OK, mm -hmm. so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to be a, a, a pretty clear case of self-defense from the Russian standpoint, just like when the Americans invaded Iraq and Libya and Syria and all, all of these kinds of obvious wars of aggression and when the israelis or the, the zionists invaded palestine all of those cases those are obviously just wars of self-defense on the part of the people who are being invaded 
Right, right. Um, we could go over the uh, astonishing or shocking disclosure by Seymour Hirsch, who, who uh, although his sources were anonymous, he's sufficiently high, highly respected that most people have believed his story. And he gave this astonishing twist of how how the war was was developed. And uh, we, we could just uh, we could perhaps just go over that. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, to, tell tell us about that. Although your your book does uh, cover uh, the pre sort of the history of leading up to the war, but yeah, talk about Seymour yeah. Bush's version. Well, there's a whole lot of prehistory from 2014 onwards when a neo-Nazi coup started a genocide program. This is an astonishing fact that uh, it was hardly mentioned in the Western media that this was this was happening. That uh, continual bombardments of the Kiev government, of its own people, the, the, the people in the East Ukraine. Uh, and uh, we weren't given the picture. This is a very, very ancient Russian culture that had been there for a thousand years. Uh, and uh, basically, the, the people in these eastern counties of, U of Ukraine just wanted to live in peace. Uh, and they didn't want this, the new legislation the Kiev government was putting out on them, whereby, you know, they weren't allowed to speak Russian and whole Russian culture was being... De de degraded and uh, marginalised, and they declared independence. And uh, whether or not they had the right to do that, the Kiev government certainly did not have the right to commence the genocidal extermination programme, which is what happened, and it could go on because it wasn't reported in the Western media. If you didn't watch RT, Russia Today, you'd hardly know that it was happening, that mm -hmm. uh, continual, maybe about 10 shells a day, were, were falling on these little mini-states in the east, on towns and cities, villages, and it was heavily landmine infested, and uh, a, a, a million people emigrated, refugees fled to Russia, and this was just going on and on. Mm. And uh, a lot of people criticised Russia. They said it should have moved in right away. And why didn't it? Well, it didn't because Putin wanted, he really, really believed in peace and goodwill right across Europe. So he thought that uh, by building this pipeline, he could establish. Uh, Europe as a place of, of friendship and lasting peace. Uh, okay, so that's why he ignored this. And all those eight years, while Russia was building the pipeline, NATO was training the Kiev military for the war which they believed was going to come and were making sure was going to come. So that's, uh, you know, a, a astonishing contrast. And I don't think Russia quite realised that. Uh, now they have. They say they can never be able to trust or negotiate with Europe again. And mm -hmm. um, we yeah, they, they've mentioned the Americans are non-agreement capable before, but now it's been really uh, demonstrated. <laughs> that European, you know, Europeans. I mean, yeah. take Angela Merkel for example, Kevin. She was a poll show. She was the most respected European politician. Okay, she had a generally mild, uh, as as the you know president of Germany. She had a mild gentle approach, using compromises, uh, a kind of sensible, moderate approach. And um, everyone thought the end of her career was going to be switching on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that was the big event. You know, that was to be 50 billion cubic metres a year of natural gas. And Europe would have reliable, cheap energy for the indefinite future, uh, 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 as well as, you know, general sense of peace and goodwill. So what what Myrtle came out and said some months ago was that they never had any agreement of honouring the Minsk uh, the Minsk treaties. 
Now, the Minsk agreements were drawn up by Russia. This is what they did after that the coup, the American coup, took place. That they they drew up these treaties. There are two attempts at Minsk treaties. Minsk is in, in Belarus, uh, and this was Russia's last attempt at an integrated, neutral, prosperous Ukraine in between East and West. But that was. You know, that should be the fate of Ukraine to, to exist in between East and West. And let's remind ourselves, the warring parties here, they're all the same. They're all Slavs. They're all almost the same uh, language. I mean, sl the Ukraine nation is a slight, slightly different from Russia. It's not that different. So why, why they fight each other? I mean, when Zelensky was elected in 2019, he could only speak Russian. <laughs> and he had to learn Ukrainian. I, I mean, so what kind of weird sort of folly is this? Mm. That the people in, well, let's, let's call them very roughly, let's call them Poles and Slavs. Strictly they're all Slavs, but Poles in the West and Slavs in the East. Probably right? those Western Ukrainians wouldn't appreciate you calling them Poles because a lot of them hate hate Poles as, right. almost as much as they hate Russians and Jews right. and everybody else. So what should we call them, Kevin? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know, Ukro Nazis or Galicians or I don't know. But but yeah, speaking of it, that you know, Ukro Nazi epithet, uh, that is interesting to me. That you know, you just uh, mentioned that there has been a program of what you called a, a kind of a genocidal extermination yeah. by people who are sort of self-styled Nazis, and yeah. that is interesting because you famously published a book on the Holocaust in which you question the notion of Nazi genocidal exterminations and uh, argued that the uh, the Nazi extermination camps, for example, uh, were not, in fact, they were work camps and so on. In other yeah, words, it's camp. basically yeah, yeah. a Holocaust revisionist book. So most people would see you as somebody who sort of downplays the exterminate genocidal exterminationist side yeah, of yeah, Nazism. Yeah. And yet yeah, here you are yeah. accusing some Nazis of genocidal extermination. So is that yeah. a contradiction or not? Well, I, I think you're pointing, thank you for bringing that up. I think this is a country with deep trauma, deep memories of trauma. It seems to me if you wanted a healing to take place, and it's probably too late for that to happen, you'd need some women to be involved and you'd need their memories of trauma to be discussed uh, and the horror that they re remember. The people in the East remember primarily the Nazis, um, the National Germany, uh, from the last war and, and the extermination. I mean, how many millions did they kill there? But then also uh, Stalin had his um, uh, Holzemore, which, you know, was a dreadful, uh, that was before the World War II, that was a dreadful... Um, uh, extermination of millions of, of uh, farmers and so on. That's more, uh, I think that's more in the east of Ukraine. So th th there's terrible events have gone wrong in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it would need some mild, uh, mild process of reconciling and talking to each other and say, well, where did this hate come from? Why do you hate each other? And if, if, if anybody wanted, if we wanted a culture of peace, that's what you'd have to have, people listening to each other. And how come the people fighting uh, in uh, for, for, for Kiev, for Zelensky, have got all these Nazi tattoos? And, and I could add also quite a lot of Satanist-type ta tattoos as well. Uh, uh, that uh, What do they mean by calling themselves Nazis? They keep referring to the Russians as orcs. Orcs, you know, Tolkien-type phrase. As people to be implying that people to be exterminated, you know, not not quite human, uh, and uh, so 
how, how do we get in, into that situation of of yeah. where, where the two sides can hardly listen to each other? Yeah. Uh, I mean, before, before the American coup, uh, they were trying to get uh, Europe was trying to get a um, had did have a democratically elected leader in Ukraine who was trying to reconcile the two sides, and they'd never get on very well together. But you know, at least he was trying. So I, I, I feel that is um, that that is. Uh, uh, in a way, the central problem isn't being examined. So it, is, so it isn't just—it isn't just a question of Nazi ideology being sort of inherently exterminationist and 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 criminal, but it's rather that the 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 crimes and horrors committed by both sides uh, in the past, including during World War II, have uh, led to this kind of mutual uh, mistrust and hatred. Although it does seem that the the hatred is disproportionately on the you know the the so-called ukrainian or western ukrainian side that is they seem yeah. to hate russians including their own countrymen who speak russian yeah. and who are re- yeah. ethnically russian a lot more than the russians hate the ukrainians so there seems to yeah, be a, yeah, yeah. A, an unbalance and it is so it is that side that identifies with with nazis that is uh, more exterminationist and and full of hatred it seems yeah yeah i i, I mean uh I think Russians have proceeded very slowly in this war. People said, well, how come Russian troops are moving so slowly? Isn't there some, we expected some sort of blitzkrieg, but they were very careful not to not to harm civilians and not to kill civilians. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, we understand why they moved so slowly in, in what, what they took over. Um, uh, and and uh, anyway, um Let's move. I'd like to move on to the this uh, new story we've got from Simoesh uh, about how how it began. Because America has been very much masterminding this process of fanning the flames of hatred, uh, and uh, you could say cynically that America doesn't care at all about Ukraine. It just uses it as a stick to poke the bear of, of, of Russia. You know, part of its geopolitical aims. Okay, so the the great uh, pipeline was finished in September. Of 2021 okay uh, and so it's all ready to switch on uh and uh we could have had a europe of pre peace and prosperity um if it had just switched on the pipeline and not brought nato troops right up against the border of russia that was obviously the other condition for a europe at peace with itself okay now at the end of that year uh Hirsch also real that um in washington jake sullivan convened a meeting to discuss the great great danger faced by NATO, because obviously as this pipeline started started flowing, NATO would become rather unnecessary. You wouldn't be able to keep up all the war games and all the hate um, and all the enemy imaging if that uh, if that pipeline was flowing. So it was an existential threat to the existence of NATO, and uh, and this this. Um, Washington meeting, which was next to the White House, included the Joint Chiefs of Staff, CIA, State and Treasury Departments, and they focused how to take out the pipeline, but it would have to have deniability. Okay, so this is the biggest terrorist attack since 9-11, and could they do it, but also deny that they'd done it? They'd want to blame Russia for doing it. So could the deep state do a thing like that, and would anyone believe them if they said that Russia did it, blew up their own pipeline? So that was um, Russia. Russia and Germany spent 22 billion euros building this world's longest pipeline, uh, and uh, 
so the, the final um, in early 2022, the, this working group uh, reported the CIA agent told them we have a way to blow up the pipelines, and other people were warning, "Don't do it. This is extremely stupid, and it will be a total nightmare." You're going by Seymour Hersh's account now, right? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is what Seymour Hersh found, and then. What the first indication we have is Victoria Newland. Beginning of January, she makes a firm statement. I want to be very clear to you. If Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. So, and then the next month, a month later, uh, President Joe Biden said the same thing. He says, if Russia invades, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. And he actually said that while the German Chancellor was standing right next to him. <laughs> Uh, he was asked, "Well, how how would you do that?" He said, "We who something like we have uh, our ways. <laughs> we have our thing. ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is clearly a kind of terrorist threat. Uh, and uh, so they then the next step was to get Russia to invade. And as far as anyone knew, they didn't have any plans to invade Ukraine. All through January and December, uh, end of that year, if you remember, uh, there were continual statements from the news that Russia was about to invade Ukraine." And there's a general sense of puzzlement of, you know, why, why did America think this is going to happen? Uh, and um, what, what, what was, how, how could they, they know this? And Lavrov didn't seem to know anything about it. Um, uh, and uh, around February the 17th, th that was the point at which the uh, uh, invasion uh, or, uh, became necessary because of the huge buildup of the Ukraine military on the borders of Donbass. That means that the, the eastern little uh, states, mini-states, it's called Donbass. And uh, in addition to that, the uh, the shelling in, around the ball, around the long border of Donbass went up about a thousandfold. Sorry, about a hundredfold. So they were getting about a thousand shells a day falling suddenly. So this was enormous increase and Russia had to do something. Mm -hmm. and I was so, just... so it was a provocation. And here again, Nick, there's a kind of an echo of uh, World War II and indeed the uh, alleged, you know, conspiracy theories or, or non-mainstream interpretations of World War II. Because, you know, just as I mentioned earlier, your book, Breaking the Spell, uh, yeah. questions the notion of Nazi Germans as sort of the, uh, the, the, the Holocaust perpetrators who tried to exterminate, you know, the whole Jewish population and killed six million people, mostly in gas chambers. And you uh, debunk a fair bit of that quite effectively in Breaking the Spell. Um, uh, likewise, in this case, we have... Uh, the uh, Western side lining up for an invasion. That is uh, the Ukrainians yeah, yeah. preparing for an invasion of the Donbass and the uh, Russians then preempting it. And that's actually a bit of an echo of Barbarossa and the way that uh, revisionist historians like Sean Meekin, among others, have yeah. argued that Stalin and the Russians were preparing to invade Germany and indeed that the uh, German invasion of Russia uh, right. in, in World War II was actually a, a preemptive invasion and very, very successful one, a shockingly successful one, at least temporarily. Um, so so that uh, that notion of preemptive, a preemptive invasion, again, just like the uh, the notion of the genocidal exterminationist Nazis kind of gets turned around here in, in right. and we see an echo of it in, in these events. Right, right. Yeah. OK, well, then. So the last step was to actually blow up the pipeline. Uh, and, uh, uh, and and that happens, what was it, 26th of September? That was the birthday of, of Kagan, who was uh, Victoria Newland's uh, husband. 
And he was a, a leading neocon. Him and Newland had had uh, central roles in in the neo-Nazi coup of uh, of of Maiden of, of Kiev, um, and also that was the um, date of the Jewish New Year. Let's just note that New Moon nearest the autumn equinox. So uh, I think that sort of tells us who who did it fairly fairly effectively. Um, it was it was American. Uh, uh, some collaboration. He thought more from Norway, Norway or Sweden, uh, sorry, Norway or Denmark uh, collaborated and it's fairly shallow waters. So that they knew that it was going to happen. They would have seen what happened. So elements of NATO would certainly have seen what happened with that, that explosion and, and decide not to say anything. So, uh, so the real question here, though, Nick, is how did they get away with this you asked earlier you know when you were discussing the sort of planning stages of this operation the big problem would have been how to make it deniable because it's so obvious yeah. who gains yeah. so everybody yeah. would really know that it was the americans or their proxies that did it and yeah. how could they then prevent europe from uh or at least some forces in europe presumably german industrialists among others yeah uh from objecting and being angry and perhaps turning away from the american-led war effort yeah well we presume that is happening but it's not really showing in the media i think the answer is that we've got a very compliant media i mean i was shocked that what you used to be called intellectual papers like the telegraph and guardian were just giving this blank let's blame russia story the, the idea that they'd spend all yeah. that money and then blow up their own pipeline um for for, for no reason uh, and, uh, yeah, that, that was even crazier than the cover story that they brought out after the Hirsch articles appeared with the uh, Gilligan's Island sailboat on the on the three hour tour, uh, a couple of scuba divers with firecrackers. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of blaming blaming Ukrainian elements, wasn't it? Right, right. Yeah, uh, totally but, uh, non non state connected Ukrainians out for a pleasure cruise on a sailboat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 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 anyway, that so that was. I think that's a good. Uh, that, that is a kind of logic of how the war had to start when it did. Uh, and it was totally orchestrated uh, 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 events, I'd say. Uh, and um, I, I mean, what happened immediately after that event, uh, after the 17th, was that Luhansk and Donetsk, the little mini states, asked, appealed to Russia for help. And for years, they've been asking Russia to recognize them, which recognizing them would mean the death of the Minsk agreements. It would mean that they were recognized as independent states uh, and no longer part of Ukraine. And Russia always refused to do that because it wanted the independent, neutral Ukraine to exist. OK, so finally, Russia recognizes these two, these little mini states because they don't want to be part of Ukraine anymore. OK, and. Once recognized, they then have the authority and they invite Russia in. They request for Russia to come in. So Russia, Russia Parliament ratifies this all happens very quickly. And it all happens around 22-222, Kevin, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get that. And um, that Yeah, you, you mentioned that this February 22nd, 2022, or 2222 yeah. in American yeah. terms, and I guess 2222 yeah. in European terms, is some yeah. kind of turning point in history. I think it is, yeah, yeah. And also like the way it's prophesied by um, a, a Russian member of the parliament who unfortunately didn't live to see it coming true, but he has a certain reputation for prophetic powers. And he said, uh, Russia will have to fight in this coming year. He said it the year before. Uh, and, and that 22nd February will be the, the, the date. He said, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. So yeah. I, I like so the So is there, is there a was... Nostradamus in the Russian parliament? 
something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I know they uh, they had Rasputin a century ago, so I guess they can do with an well, Nostradamus now. Uh, good point. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that is a turning point, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, there's a whole lot happening now. The whole world is turning. It's amazing how the whole world is turning now. Uh, as Putin said, the changes are happening are tectonic and irreversible. Uh, and uh, and they're not at all what the West expected. I mean, all the Western pundits thought that, uh, first of all, NATO could beat Russia and sanctions will cripple Russia. You know, uh, everyone assumed that would happen, that they could put sanctions and Russia. Right, would, everybody always yeah. obeys sanctions, right? Like the US sanctions Iran and they terrorize everybody into kind of only trading a little bit with Iran when they think Uncle Sam isn't looking. So yeah. they probably figured that it would happen again uh, with Russia. But this time yeah. the world yeah. wasn't listening. Yeah, so it's, it's quite amazing. I, I think it's staggering that uh, Russia has not been destroyed. In fact, I, I, I got a friend in Moscow who says things are pretty well normal here, you, you know. Um, and it's far more Europe is suffering. Europe is being tormented by dreadful increases in prices of gas, electricity, food, you know. And in fact, the, the sub subtitle of my book, uh, How the West Was Lost, I feel the good times are over for Europe by the, the folly, amazing folly of what it's done now. Uh, yeah, let's let's uh, show people the subtitle here. How 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 the West was lost, uh, uh, and right. yeah, it it certainly it looks like this is kind of a self inflicted wound from the geniuses who cooked up this notion to finish off Russia with his war, so they could then uh, go and 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 get China. That that strategy, yeah. in retrospect, uh, looks uh, pretty strange. Yeah, I, I think. Um, China, Russia, and Iran recognize that their futures are bound together. And uh, the, I, I like reading the articles by Pepe Escobar. He writes for the East Asia Asia Times, doesn't he? Uh, and he, he's, he, he's, he's got some optimistic vision of how what he calls the Quad, that's the four countries, Russia, China, India, and Iran, uh, are, are going to blossom. Their culture blossom, and they will there'll be a, somehow a new culture in the east developing there and he's been saying this for you know well over a decade were you uh, i know when i saw you in tehran at one of those conferences uh was was he there at that one because I, he's been there at several of the conferences in tehran that i've attended has he yeah oh, right. yeah yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I, I've been, I, it's strange i've met him in person and we've had dinner together and and had great conversations and you know quite friendly personally but he, he's never come on my radio show and for a while oh, right. i think he was reluctant to because i was this crazy radical muslim 9-11 truther and he was trying to be a little bit more uh respectable but uh -huh. i think at this point with the, the russian uh demonization of russia and everything yeah i think pepe is just as disreputable reputable as i am now yeah, right. So I recommend uh, listeners to check out any articles by Pepe Escobar, Brazilian philosopher. He's got optimistic vision of, of, of the future, which you don't come across too often. Uh, and uh, he, he talks about the way the world is turning now, that uh, the, new, that the pipelines are moving eastwards now, that, that they've been cut off from Europe. And uh, so there's an era of prosperity is coming to Asia now. Uh, and Asian countries that that uh, this war is triggered in, in an amazing manner. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that somebody like Pepe Escobar, who's looks like he's basically gotten this right. I mean, we won't know for sure until the fat lady sings, but it does seem that it's he's he's been on the right track all along. Uh, right. Whereas all of these 
honorable mainstream people in fancy university positions and think tank positions and so on, you know, they've all been really wrong and off base. And, you know, because I got involved in 9-11 Truth and became a disreputable uh, extreme dissident, I got to end up meeting people like Pepe Escobar and you, of course, at, at places right. like this, you know, the, the conferences in Tehran. And yeah. so it's it's odd how we end up, you know, hanging out with the people who were getting this right from the get-go, while all of the highly paid and super respectable people were getting it wrong. Right. Hey, do you know do you know an Iranian TV producer called uh, Blake Blake somebody? Um, he he's made a series of videos, me and various other people. Um, so I can't remember the rest of his name. Oh, oh yeah, Blake Archer Williams. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he's he's got a rather low opinion of the Iranian government. Uh, he doesn't share the optimism that uh, mm -hmm. uh, that the good times are coming for Iran. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, he's. I, th I think he's he's become a bit laser focused on certain internal program problems, and whether or not that accurately reflects the big picture in Iran, I'm not sure. Because uh, no. he, you know, he's he's all he's had ish, personal issues with with uh, his dealings with trying to uh, do media and things like that. But yeah, I'll, I'll probably have him back on the show at some point talking about such things. He's a great guy. Uh, another of these people who are really too, you know, they're barking up the right tree way too much to be allowed to have a voice in the mainstream. Right. Well, I feel that BRICS is basically a culture of peace that it wants economic uh, sharing, uh, cultural sharing and prosperity. Uh, and it, it's the opposite of NATO, really. It, it, it's it's, And that's why so many nations are queuing up to try and join BRICS now, mm -hmm. that they see it as a possible route for uh, prosperity and China being voted as the most trusted nation now. Right. So they're both the world's biggest industrial power, the world's biggest economy by uh, actual uh, real measures, uh, per purchasing power parity measures and so they're, they're the the biggest country most mm. powerful country biggest uh, manufacturing economy and then also most trusted and now their diplomacy is moving in and and sweeping away the american efforts so-called so yeah. efforts at diplomacy we just saw iran and saudi arabia suddenly making up and restoring relations uh with a brokered by china and uh, then she went on to moscow for uh, a, a Ukraine peace peace plan, which is obviously one that Russia could probably work with, and the West yeah, obviously right. couldn't, but yeah. the whole world basically sides with China and Russia, or the majority of, of the non-Western world does anyway. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's, the, it's, the, the, the whole world sees China as putting forth a peace plan, and as you say, doing this marvelous resolution between conflicting nations, and the whole world sees America as just threatening war, uh, and. Uh, trying to do diplomacy by threatening people and bossing them around. And uh, I think more and more countries are very fed up with this. Yeah, it really does give the lie to the neocon notion that, uh, that you know, fear is better than love. Make you know, it's uh, This is like Michael Ledeen, you know, channeling Machiavelli, saying that, you know, the, <laughs> one of the great contributions of Machiavelli, that that crypto Jew, was uh, that uh, he knew right. that, that fear was was better than love. Like, make them make the prince needs to make people fear him and rather than than like him. 
And and so I think the neocons have carried this way too far. I mean, there may be some truth to it that, you know, if, if the leader can't make people love him, then at least he needs to inspire some fear, at least temporarily, till he can get the love back and so on and so forth. Right. Machiavelli may have had a point there. But uh, but Ladine and these neocons have carried it to this absurd extreme where inspiring you know, people to just totally hate you and have no use for you is the way to win friends and influence people. And of course, it doesn't work that way. No, no, no. Right. OK, let's come back to Ukraine now, if I may. And uh, let me read out what Putin said was the reason why Russia had to act. OK, well, back in February of last year, he said um, it became impossible to tolerate it. That's the nonstop bombardment of, 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 of the eastern Ukraine. We had to stop that atrocity, that genocide of the millions of people who live there and who pinned their hopes on Russia, on all of us. It is their aspirations, the feelings and pain of these people that were the main motivating force behind our decision to recognise the independence of the Donbass People's Republics. Um, should we wait for this abuse of people to continue? This genocide of almost four million people who live in these territories. OK, so I, I, I think we should agree with them that it was by any standards, an ongoing process of genocide, and Russia steps in primarily to try and stop that, which it hasn't succeeded in doing yet, okay? The bombardment is still going on uh, after, you know, nine years. Uh, it hasn't yet succeeded, but that is the aim. So presumably- And that, that leaves the question about Russia's strategy. That is, is it, is it a viable strategy to try to stop that, uh, genocide, that kind of nonstop threat posed to the people of the eastern regions of Ukraine through this special military operation. Because right. from one, you know, one interpretation would be that Ukraine, backed by the West, is really never going to stop attacking, and you know, it's it's just not going to give up. And so, how is Russia ever going to establish? a kind of a stable peace that could protect the people of the Donbass. Well, indeed, yeah. I think now, nobody really knows the answer to that. Um, let's point out, more and more evidence has come out, that peace negotiations were going on at the end of March of, of last year, and by Turkey. Turkey is, you know, the best possible nation to carry out is peace, independent peace negotiations, because in between East and West itself, and it's fairly near Ukraine. It looks looks on the Black Sea, just as Ukraine does. And so peace negotiations were going on in Istanbul. The two opposite side politicians were sitting down at a table together. And uh, Erdogan, Erdogan, Prime Minister of Turkey, was conducting these, OK? And then what happens? Britain's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, turns up in Kiev and instructs. So let's say, no, no, don't negotiate. No, no, we can't have you negotiating peace. You can't negotiate with Putin. Uh, and and uh, we, we've got to fight on. We've got to fight on to the last Ukrainian. So uh, it's become increasingly clear that it's Boris Johnson's visit that killed those peace negotiations. Yeah, now, thanks, Boris. <laughs> right. Now, uh, a lot of people believe that that limited military operation that Putin started, that was the goal of it, to... to uh, to, to stop the invasion, which would have been the eradication of the culture of the East, R Russian culture, um, and to lead to some negotiated settlement. That, that was, as it were, the, the most sensible aim of the Russian military operation. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's quite feasible, you know, that, that uh, 
and and uh, anyway, Britain uh, Britain has always played the most strongly warmongering role of anyone in Europe, uh, which is in in a quite extraordinary manner in in exacerbating this war and in making sure it continues and is spreading it into Russia. And, uh, and why, why is that? Because this empire is really more of an American empire than a British empire, isn't it? I mean, some like the Saker calls it the Anglo-Zionist empire with Anglo in the first uh, place, suggesting that maybe the Brits have a bigger say than one would think from the size of their island. Uh, but uh, so why, why is why are the Brits leading the charge here in sort of the war party and being, you know, along with the neocons uh, playing the role of, of yeah. the Hawks? Well, that is a terrible question. I, I mean, my, my country, the, 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 the UK, it is fully dedicated to everlasting war. Uh, I would say that's the reality of the century. Britain and America both have this, in effect, dedication. The warmongers and military are so strong uh, and can so much influence the, the media. Uh, ever since 2017, we've had an intense, let's hate Russia propaganda. Before that, if you can remember, it was all let's hate Muslims. I, Suddenly, I, I somehow do remember that. Nick. <laughs> How can somehow, I ever forget? Somehow, all the let's say it Muslim stuff terminated 2017. Oh, no, there are no longer any Islamic terror events. Uh, and instead, we start getting uh, uh, Russia, bogus Russia, like, like the Scripple story, the whole story of poison with Novichok. That was a totally British intelligence cooked up job. Um, and it worked. Diplomats all across Europe. America were expelled, uh, and a lot of poison was injected into the atmosphere. And that was then exacerbated by Navalny, uh, another intelligence operation, British-American, with Novichok, uh, allegation Russia poisoning uh, a, a, a dissident. Uh, and uh, these these stories, together with the MH17, totally poisoned the diplomatic atmosphere. And there was nothing much Russia could do about them. I mean, there were unjust accusations, they weren't debated, or there's no way you could debate or hear both sides of the argument. They were just given, the politicians accepted them, uh, and uh, it leads to a kind of a let's hate Russia mentality. Um, but as to why Britain is so much more dedicated to this, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always, every day I'm asking myself this question. Why, why is there no anti-war party in this country? Why are there no, uh, any politicians who actually, we had one politician who actually didn't believe in war, and that was Jeremy Corbyn, mm -hmm. and he was totally mm -hmm. vilified. Look what happened to him. Look what happened to him, right. Um, <laughs> and it was the Zionists who got him. So is it is it really that the Zionists have such a death grip on Britain that they join up with the neocons from you know, the American neocons in the war party. In other words, you know, we could put it, uh, you know, ethnically and say that there's a, a, a lot of Jewish power in both oh, the United yeah. States and Britain, which has transformed from it used to actually probably, you know, had an element of being pro-peace in the 1960s. The uh, Jewish, you know, disproportionately Jewish mainstream media was actually quite open to covering anti-war protests and so on. And right. uh, Jewish opinion leaders tended to be more on the left and on the anti-war side. Uh, right. People like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and all of these people were the leaders of the anti-war movement and so on. But now it seems that the Jewish establishment, despite the fact that Jewish public opinion in the United States was more strongly against participation in the Iraq war than that of any other American ethnic group. But the, uh, it seems really? that the yeah, yeah. So, so the Jewish people in the United States 
leaned left. They didn't like Bush Cheney and they didn't like the Iraq war overall. Yeah, but it yeah. seems that there's an, a, a, a wealthy and powerful element in that community that yeah, has yeah. essentially kind of gone full neocon. And I'm wondering if something like that is happening in the UK as well, which would explain that seemingly, you know, disproportionately, you know, sort of yeah. Zionist neocon uh, connection to the war party. Well, consider the following. Uh, last month, uh, British military announced they were sending depleted uranium shells for, for their tanks. Uh, and I think also their artillery. <clears throat> now, that leads to permanent radioactive contamination, as uh, uh, shown very clearly in Iraq. Now, how come Britain has no scruples about this? How come no one has bothered about this? You know, lots of other reports all around the world talking about, say, the very high cancer rates left in Iraq and all the mismutated babies that get born from depleted uranium. And uh, Britain just said, there's some report, official report, saying depleted uranium is harmless. We failed to see any evidence for it being, you know, usual. Yeah, all, uh, all those babies being born with two heads in Iraq, it's just normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible to me how they can ignore all the evidence uh, and just pretend that it doesn't do anything. Uh, I mean, oh, I mean, uranium has the curious property that it burns at a relatively low temperature, about a couple of hundred degrees centigrade. So when a tank shell hit, sorry, when a uranium, a DU shell hits a tank, uh, the impact raises its temperature and you get combustion. And that's how you get the terrific clouds of depleted uranium, which blows in the wind, you, you know, because you get a combustion taking place and Ukraine's wheat fields, the main thing Ukraine exported, huge amount of wheat, uh, wheat fields, rich, fertile soil. What's going to happen to that when, you know, the British have fi fi uh, finished firing their depleted uranium uh, shells? Well, the uh, Russians so responded uh, pretty harshly to that and, and said that they'll respond uh, proportionally. So by proportionally, I suppose that probably doesn't mean that they're going to unleash that... 500 or 1,000 foot high radioactive tidal wave to completely eliminate the British Isles uh, permanently <laughs> from history. Uh, that might be a little disproportionate, but uh, well, somehow... The, 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 the nightmare logic is that the DU shells have twice the density of, you know, iron or steel, um, enormously more dense, and that means they can travel much further and they can penetrate other tanks very easily. Other tanks become just sitting ducks if one side is using DU shells. So that kind of compels the other side to use it as well. So it's it's right. a nightmare logic. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the stuff should really be banned. And uh, anyway, I just cite this as showing the apparently quite heartless, heartless dedication to war, which this country seems to have, uh, that uh, uh, of... of uh, you know, stopping the peace, any peace process. Absolutely. And, you know, one, one other example of heartless dedication to war here in your book, on, uh, let's see, page 152, you, uh, it's part of that passage where you talk about uh, Sergei uh, Glazev and his terrific book, which has been made completely oh, yeah, right. unpublishable yeah. in the West. So the only way oh, people right. can, can read it is either to read the PDF, the free PDF online, or they can buy your book and read some extracts here. Well, well I was hoping that John Paul Leonard might republish it. I, I, I asked him, uh, and he was looking into it. So Yeah, well, it's, it's not going to be on Amazon, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, what, what you, you, you quote uh, Sergei Glasyev saying... Uh, 
here's the passage right here marked up. He says, neither the COVID virus launched from American biological laboratories nor the hybrid war, uh, world war unleashed by the U.S. intelligence services will save the American oligarchy. Now, that reference to the COVID virus launched from American biological laboratories strikes me as a very interesting statement uh, because the word launched is not doesn't say it's not like leaked, which could be taken as an accident. So he's accusing the Americans of deliberately launching the COVID virus. And that, of course, is uh, a thesis that I've been pushing since very early on. It's almost since the discovery of COVID. And then a couple of months after I started talking about this on the radio, Ron Unz published his book, uh, Our COVID-19 Catastrophe is Biowarfare Blowback, the articles that became his book. And there's an incredibly strong circumstantial case that that's where COVID came from. And here we have Sergei Glazyev, this very influential Russian actually stating it and yeah i guess no maybe that's one reason that his book has been completely banned in the west is that that kind of uh truth telling is is uh taboo but in any case yeah. uh what, what's, what's your take on on that issue would you agree with those of us who have noticed the uh, uh the strong case that this was a u.s bio attack on china and iran oh yeah i think uh there's some soldiers coming there was a, there was a military olympic games in, in just around wuhan in I think it was November 2019, wasn't it? Uh, uh, that was when these. That was when it first bro- broke out. Yeah, October actually. Yeah, October, October. Yeah, right. and, and then the virus was was first circulating meaningfully in November. So yeah, that, yeah. that's right. But yeah. they felt these American uh, participants didn't seem to be seriously involved at all in Olympic Games. Yeah, they, uh, they finished uh, something like 130th or so. They finished way down the list of countries. So either our military guys are, are lame or maybe they had some some guys in there who are not really athletes whose job yeah, is to go yeah. to the Wuhan seafood market and add some yeah. special spice to the seafood. Something like that, yeah. I mean, it does look very much like a biological warfare attack. I mean, there are other arguments that the the virus never really existed or it's just uh, I, 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 so I, I'm not sure about it. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that's disinformation, frankly, but what? All right. Well, certainly Iranians believe they were targeted, don't they? Well, I mean, yeah, pretty pretty much every country in the world, including all of these independent countries like Iran, recognize that this you know virus is what it is. You know, it's not like it's not like the plague. It's not going to kill half of humanity, but it right. uh, you know it has we you know it just it's a real virus. It's a basically a weaponized cold virus. So you take the the cold, a common cold, turn it into something more like the flu, except it's got these specially nasty properties. And it can end up, you know, it kills a fair number of really old people and obese people and a very moderate yeah. number of non-old and obese people. But it's enough. It kills enough people that when you unleash it on somebody, they have to totally mobilize and do something about it. Because, you know, even if you're only killing one out of 200 or one out of 500 people with this virus, then if it's super contagious and everybody's going to get it, if you kill like one out of every 200 people in a nation, you end up with a gigantic pile of corpses and that's not acceptable. So the country has to defend itself. And so by defending, that's a lockdown has to it's economically. So, yeah. so it's an economic yeah. bioweapon. And yeah. that would have been why they would try to hit China and Iran with it. Yeah. Well, China certainly felt it was coming under attack. And previously there'd been bioweapon attacks on, I think the Chinese pig in the pig industry, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, and the chicken and the, industry, yeah. And, yeah. and the chicken, yeah. Anyway, listen, if I could just come back, let's finish off talking about the perception of what Russia's motive was 
Okay, uh, I, I quoted his reason for going into the Donbass. Now, I think he gave three reasons for this this conflict we call limited military operation first of all we, what we just said to try and if he could to stop the protect the donbass people uh, the russian culture second he said he wanted a neutral ukraine and ukraine was threatening to uh, get nuclear weapons and become part of nato mm -hmm. and thirdly he said he wanted to denazify ukraine now uh, i can see his point but i'm not sure if those other two goals are in accord with international law. If uh, international does it permit invasion for uh, for for these for these reasons, because you don't like the government or you don't like the Nazi elements, um, so uh, I, I would say, and also those other two reasons suggest that Russia wants to go right up to the capital of Kiev and change the government or take over the country. I would have thought that Russia should be aiming just to rescue the part of the the, the East, which was a tradition, much more traditional Russian culture. Mm -hmm. um, You're right, and not only is is that uh, goal mm -hmm. in line with international law, unlike the other two, but it's also probably more achievable or something that one could imagine achieving with a special military operation. Whereas denazifying strikes me as kind of uh, impossible in that by you know by doing this war that's simply going to harden the hatred of the nazi element in ukraine yeah so yeah. how can it how can you denazify these people yeah. by yeah. having starting this war that's going to make them hate you even more so that doesn't yeah. that part strike always oh, the denazification part i mean i want i understand why they would want to do that i understand why they would say it because you know hating on nazis is good propaganda but in terms of reality it doesn't make a lot of sense to me yeah okay now at the beginning of the war there was convoys of tanks from Russia, apparently making their way towards Kiev. Uh, that showed they got total air superiority. They didn't have anything to fear. And also had a load of Russians stationed in a little, little town called Butcher, which is north, uh, I think it was northeast of Kiev, uh, not far from Kiev. Uh, and that then became the scene of the so-called Butcher Massacre, which was another fabricated event. And your book uh, does a good job going through all of these fabricated events. Right. Now, the trouble is, now, my understanding is that that was a feint, that Russia had about 100,000 troops and Kiev had something like 500,000. And Russia was trying to do this limited military operation with something like a three to one disadvantage. And that was a feint going up to Kiev, which had the effect of pinning down a whole lot of Russian troops around Kiev for whereas the, the the main russian operation was in in the south and in the in the east and so after a bit those russian troops simply withdrew and did not attempt at all to go into kiev okay so right. and, and of course the west spun that as the heroic ukrainians successfully defended kiev exactly yeah so from a military point of view the russian operation was probably successful but perhaps the optics were a bit rather disastrous that uh mm -hmm. Russia couldn't control the narrative, which the West then took over, that uh, oh, Russia wants to dominate Ukraine and uh, we all have to defend Ukraine against poor little Ukraine against big bad Russia who wants to take it over. And that became the, 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 the NATO narrative. Um, so I, I feel that there's a problem with, with optics that um, 
Russia has very little ability to put its viewpoint across. Well, it's possible, Nick, that that feint was not just a feint. That is, it became a feint because the preferred outcome would have been a uh, coup d'etat by pro-peace forces or relatively pro-Russian forces in in Kiev. And the same thing in in other cities as well. There's been some suggestion that uh, Russia had tried to prepare the way for uh, actual sort of surrenders and regime changes in in Ukraine, hoping that their special military operation would, you know, be part of that, and that they basically failed. in, I think they're in in was it the there was one was it Kherson I guess was the one city where it worked, but nowhere else were there people you know that that the the pro Russian element was unable to effectuate the regime change. Yeah, but is that in accord with international law? I, I think it's terribly important. If, if we if we're, if we're part of a peace movement, we believe in try to believe in world peace. That that the fabric of international law really does matter, and it, it, it totally allows Russia to be defending the Russian people in the east. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure about these other things that. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good point. It, it was seen to be doing that. That's um. Uh, that, that that I I think is 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 the problem. Um, I mean I, I think it's w- w- this conflict is very clear that Russia is on the is the right side, and the whole NATO uh, attack is based on a false narrative. So we're dealing with a kind of information war, where there's a complete blackout of what is really happening in the real history. Ordinary people are not allowed to hear that at all, and and the papers certainly aren't going to tell you about it. Um, uh, and that 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 is what legitimizes or legitimizes the war for ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. It's a it's a it's a balanced view. Well, we're we're pretty much at the end of the hour. We're talking about your book, uh, Ukraine, the Just yeah. War, and it's not mm-hmm. the just war that the uh, newspapers and broadcast outlets, the mainstream media are telling us that that clown Zelensky is supposedly fighting. This is the just war from the viewpoint of Russia. And so yeah. it's a it's a very uh, heretical book. It's well put together. It's a good compendium of essential information about this war, and I think everybody should read it, including especially the people who are inclined not to agree with it. Yes, well, thank you. I feel we had a, a that's a very productive discussion. I really appreciate your words. Yeah, wisdom, likewise. It's, it's great to get back with you. Uh, hopefully, yeah, uh, yeah. see you see you like uh, you and yeah. Pepe next year in Tehran. Inshallah, <laughs> be fantastic, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take care, Dave. Bye bye. Okay, Kevin. Let's hope hope that happens. Okay. Bye-bye. Right.